0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks is upon us. The attacks that changed everything. A decade ago, I made a piece about presenting NPR coverage that day from 10 until noon, which included sound from the original broadcast. And you can find it at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. It's one of the best things I've ever done, and I urge you to give it a listen. But for this anniversary, I want to return to the phrase, this changes everything, and look at the way the destruction of the World Trade Center specifically changed things here in London. I wandered over to the Finsbury Park Mosque, about a mile and a half from my front door recently. I was working on a story for The National, a daily news website published in Abu Dhabi, and an excellent source for a different non-Western perspective on world events. It was early afternoon on a Friday in August. The mosque is located at the bottom of London's Blackstock Road, a neighborhood finely poised between immigrants and gentrifiers. This is my manner, as Londoners like to say. The immigrants are from Muslim countries, and shopkeepers were lowering shutters and making their way towards the mosque. It was Friday. In Kabul, this same day, Friday prayers were conducted against a background of fear and chaos as thousands surrounded the airport trying to escape the new Taliban regime. And I wanted to talk to some Finsbury Park worshippers about it. Outside the Café Salam, 50 meters from the mosque's entrance, four men were having a chat. I butted in. Have you been following what's going on in Afghanistan this week? They looked at each other, were silent. Then the youngest of the men said, Dramas keep happening in the Middle East. Oh, where are you from? I arrived from Algeria in 2006. Do you mind if I ask your name? Silence. Abu. The men looked at me and laughed oh, come on, it's Abu something. Abu Biden, said the oldest of the four. I persisted with the Algerian. You don't have children? Yes, I have children. My name is Yacoub. I came here in the back of a lorry from Algeria. I have a lot of help when I get here. I get my education. This country is good to me. The streets were remarkably empty. Twenty years ago, the scene at Friday prayers would have been completely different. Hundreds, perhaps more, would have crowded the street around the mosque. Police would have been everywhere to control the crowds because the mosque's imam was Abu Hamza al-Masri, and under his leadership the place had become a recruitment and propaganda center for global jihadi terrorism. Weapons training reportedly took place on its premises. On the first anniversary of 9-11, Hamza hosted a conference titled A Towering Day in History, praising the attack on the World Trade Center. The hijackers were called the Magnificent 19. Yakub looked at me. It's different now. We don't believe in Abu Hamza. Neither does the current mosque leadership. I asked to speak to them and got a terse email back. As a mosque, we have nothing to do with this anniversary, and therefore we won't be able to speak about it. The current trustees became trustees of the mosque from 2005 and had no involvement before that year. The atmosphere surrounding Britain's Muslim community following 9-11 was confused and feverish. Most Britons were completely ignorant of life among the country's Muslim minority. I knew about the goings-on at the Finsbury Park Mosque. In the late 90s, the fax machine at the NPR London Bureau regularly received pronouncements from Al-Muhajirun, a group connected to the mosque, led by a rabble-rousing teacher named Omar Bakri Mohammed, Syrian-born and thrown out of several Middle Eastern countries, including Saudi Arabia, for agitation against governments. The faxes were easy to mock, invoking the Quran calling on Muslims to destroy infidels as the original warriors from the Arabian Peninsula had conquered Palestine and North Africa in the 6th and 7th century. Omar Bakri had turned up in London in the mid-80s and had developed a following around England, teaching his interpretation of the Quran. Actually, it was more indoctrination than teaching, and he found many willing students because Britain's Muslim community in the early part of this century was going through a period of transition. A few years after 9-11, I made a documentary about British jihadis called British Jihad Inside Out. You can also find it at the website. I interviewed Tarek Modood, University of Bristol Professor of Sociology. He explained the transition this way. Britain's Muslim community's main point of origin was in South Asia, Pakistan and Bangladesh. They had arrived in the UK in the 50s and 60s and they practiced in Islam derived more from folk customs of rural Pakistan than the Quran. Their educated children began reading the Quran for themselves But in English, and they saw critical differences in their parents' practice and what they understood the Quran was saying. For many children of immigrants, there was the inevitable dynamic of second generation psychology, a sense of alienation from being neither entirely British nor entirely Pakistani. Adding to this sense of alienation was the fact that Britain was undergoing a new wave of Muslim immigration. The new arrivals came from North Africa, usually for political, not economic reasons. Maldud explained to me that the collision between the questioning second generation and the new arrivals with their Islamist politics created potential recruits for the jihadist worldview of Omar Bakri Muhammad. For the documentary, I attended a few of Bakri's teaching sessions and interviewed him. It wasn't difficult. He operated out in the open and seemed to welcome press interest. His message was clear and simple. Martyrdom, self-sacrifice operations, were the highest calling for a Muslim. His rhetoric was very seductive and pushed the limits of free speech to its boundary with treason. I asked him about the irony that he couldn't speak so freely in Saudi Arabia or Syria. He gleefully agreed. The teacher saw it as a religious test for Britain and the West. You have your own religion, he said to me, which believes in freedom and democracy. I benefit from that, no doubt about it, but I don't give it any legitimacy. Now, if you're going to stop me speaking, I have defeated you ideologically because you don't practice what you preach, and that's what I want to prove. It's really catch-22. His stay-out-of-jail card was what he called a covenant of security, a promise his acolytes gave not to commit acts of terror inside the U.K., the country that had taken them in that ended on the 7th of July 2005 when 52 people were killed in a series of suicide bombings in London the four terrorists were killed as well their leader had links to Bakri and Al Muhajiroun in one of the little mysteries of that time Bakri was not detained following the attacks a month later he left Britain for a holiday in Lebanon his residence status in the UK was terminated In Lebanon, eventually, he was thrown in jail. So here we are, 20 years later. The radical preachers are in prison. Abu Hamza in the U.S., Omar Bakri in Lebanon. An associate of theirs, Anjum Chowdhury, has only recently been released from a British jail and had a ban on public speaking lifted. Periodically, their baleful work explodes, like a World War II bomb discovered under a London building site. A lone wolf attacker drives into a crowd or stabs some people to death on a London bridge or murders an off-duty soldier. Invariably, they have a connection to Bakri and al Muhajaroon. So Muslims in Britain are still stigmatized by the radical preacher's activities. I got back in touch with Tariq Modud. He sent me an email. The level of publicly expressed hostility to Muslims is much greater, and that's recorded by all surveys. There's a lot of racism on social media. Islamophobia in mainstream media is much higher. He adds, linked to this is the surveillance and regulation that Muslims are subjected to, not just by the security services, but in schools. He then put me in touch with a lawyer. Tufyal Chowdhury, who works with younger Muslims. He told me for them, 9-11 is ancient history. A more recent event occupies their minds, the Syrian civil war. Events in Syria threw renewed negative focus on the community when reports of young British Muslims traveling to Syria to fight with ISIS emerged. Most notorious were Mohammed Umwazi, a.k.a. Jihadi John, seen beheading American journalists James Foley and Stephen Satloff in ISIS-held Syrian territory. And then there were three East London schoolgirls who went to Syria and married ISIS fighters. All are now dead, except Shemima Begum, who is a stateless person living in a refugee camp in Kurdish-held northern Syria. Chowdhury adds, the younger generation are far more politically engaged, because they have to be. The focus is on them in terms of terrorism and counterterrorism. Yet, the pace of integration among young Muslims has increased, says Chowdhury. More are going into higher education, particularly women. This is led to a broader scope in their political activism, Chowdhury points out. Muslims are very active in student union politics and have built a range of alliances, which is a form of integration, he says, with other organizations like Black Lives Matter and LGBT groups. Muslim representation is increasing at national level, although more slowly. On 9-11, there were just two Muslim MPs. Today, there are 18. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and Britain's health secretary, Sajid Javid, prominent Muslims, and they are significantly different representatives of the community than Abu Hamza and Omar Bakri Muhammad. A few years after I made that documentary, I was on a panel organized by a group called Dialogue with Islam at the East London Mosque, another radical center. There were two journalists and a former British diplomat, and a couple of Muslim community leaders on the panel. We talked about Afghanistan and Iraq, and as the only American and Jew on the panel, I came under some pretty intense questioning in the Q&A part of the evening. A young man of Bangladeshi background, wearing a white hajj skullcap, gloatingly asked me, given the problems the U.S. was having in Iraq and Afghanistan, what will happen when the whole Ummah was finally united in a single caliphate? I said to him, the question would be better addressed to the Chinese and Indian governments, since this imaginary Ummah, running from Morocco to Indonesia, would be on their borders. I added, it didn't seem likely that a militant Islamic state on its southern flank is something the Chinese government would tolerate. I think of that young man often when I read about the million Uyghurs in Xinjiang province living in camps, or when I read about Muslim Pakistan doing nothing about their condition because the government needs that Chinese belt-and-road money. I'm sure I will think of him as China makes a deal with the Taliban to extract all those beautiful raw materials Afghanistan possesses. I will think of him because the world has changed so much in 20 years, and the idea of a global ummah about which I heard so often and so relentlessly back in those days, has been thoroughly discredited in Britain's Muslim community. One other thing has crowded my brain in this anniversary season. Of all the unintended consequences of the September 11th attacks, the collapse of Britain's Labour Party is probably one of the most important and least foreseen On 9-11, the disintegration of labor would have seemed unimaginable. Just three months before the destruction of the World Trade Center, the Labor Party had been led to a second landslide victory by Tony Blair. Yet today, the party has been out of power for more than a decade and faces many more years in the wilderness before it has a realistic chance to return to government. The march to labor's catastrophe began just nine days after al-Qaeda's attacks. On September 20th, 2001, American President George W. Bush addressed a joint session of Congress to outline America's response. The only foreign leader in the U.S. Capitol that evening was Tony Blair. To loud cheers, the President gave him a shout-out. I'm so honored the British Prime Minister has crossed an ocean to show his unity with America. Thank you for coming, friend. On that same day at a White House dinner, the outline of the coming military action in Afghanistan was discussed, along with one other intervention, removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. Sir Christopher Meyer, the British ambassador to the U.S. at the time, attended that dinner and told reporters later that Blair gave no indication that regime change in Iraq would be a problem. Blair's acquiescence was not surprising. In April 1999, the Prime Minister had given a major speech in Chicago in which he said, War is an imperfect instrument for righting humanitarian distress, but armed force is sometimes the only means of dealing with dictators. He mentioned two dictators by name. One of them was Saddam Hussein. The other dictator was Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic. As Blair delivered the speech, NATO planes were bombing what was still called Yugoslavia, including the capital Belgrade, to force Milosevic to remove his troops from Kosovo. The bombing campaign was successful. Robin Lustig, who at the time was one of the BBC's main news presenters, pointed out to me that the former prime minister shared with Bush a quasi-messianic worldview. He felt he had been put on earth to fight evil. I spoke with Robin recently, and he remembered, I interviewed him and asked, what do you say to people who call you Bush's puppet? And Blair answered, it's worse than that. I agree with him. In any case, after the September 20th meeting in Washington, the events were now linked—the 9-11 attacks and the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. The Labour Party rank-and-file membership really was never wholly aligned with Blair's worldview. The grassroots were not reflexively pro-American. They were inclined to pacifism and genuinely socialist. Blair was not a socialist, and he was pro-American, and as was clear from the beginning, he had no problem using Britain's military force, usually in collaboration with the American military, to rid the world of evil. Blair was in many ways more popular with Britain in general than within his own party, But electoral victories can paper over a lot of cracks. Even after it became clear that the American and British occupation of Iraq was heading for failure, Blair won a third election in 2005 with a working majority of 66. When he stood down in 2008, fulfilling a long-standing agreement to let his chancellor of the exchequer, Gordon Brown, become prime minister, he went without a word of apology for following Bush into Iraq and Afghanistan. Both conflicts were still going on and clearly had not succeeded. Blair and all those associated with him became poison in the Labour Party. And yet, with all the division within Labour and the fact they'd been in government for 13 years, which is really quite a long time in the British system, the Conservatives did not win the 2010 general election. A coalition government was formed between the Conservatives, led by David Cameron, and the Liberal Democrats, led by Nick Clegg. Gordon Brown stood down as Labour leader. The contest to replace him was between the Miliband brothers, David and Ed. David was regarded as the more capable of the two, but he was closely identified with Blair, so he never stood a chance. Ed Miliband moved labor back towards its more socialist, pacifist roots. His most notable act was to lead a parliamentary vote against joining the U.S. in bombing Syria after its president, Bashar al-Assad, used chemical weapons against his own people. After the U.K. declined to join America in military action, President Barack Obama decided not to use force against the Syrian leader. In the 2015 general election, the conservatives finally won a straight victory over labor. Miliband resigned, and the party selected Jeremy Corbyn as leader. Corbyn fully returned the party to its status quo before Blair. Anti-Americanism and pacifist socialism had been Corbyn's essential worldview for 50 years. A key part of that worldview was the European Union was a tool of global capitalism. When Cameron called a referendum on Britain leaving the EU, Corbyn was exactly the wrong person to use his position as party leader to convince Britons to vote Remain. The country voted for Brexit by a small majority. Corbyn led Labour to its worst electoral defeat in 85 years. Corbyn would not have happened without Blair's Iraq folly. That's the view of Robin Lustig, and I completely agree. Blair and Iraq led to Ed Miliband and Syria and then Corbyn and Brexit. How different Britain would be today without 9-11 and Blair in charge, committing the country to fight alongside America, come what may. Today the Conservative Party, led by Boris Johnson, a man as manifestly unfit to be Prime Minister as Donald Trump was to be President, has an 80-plus seat majority in Parliament the Labour Party still remains split over the Blair legacy. Owing to the peculiarities of the British electoral system, historical precedents say it will take at least two more elections for Labour to overturn the Conservative majority. The next one is scheduled for 2024, and under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, it could be another five years after that before another is held. The Conservatives have been in government since 2010, And there's a good chance they will still be there at the end of this decade. This country's parliamentary system of government does not work when the opposition is so weak. When Osama bin Laden gave the green light for the 9-11 attacks, his target was America. He could never have thought that their success would lead to twin wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that the Iraq war in particular would lead to the destruction of the Labour Party and turning Britain into a one-party state. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Please visit the website. Listen to that 9-11, 10th anniversary piece. There's a lot of good music in it. And while you are there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.